Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally here And I can feel the change in the way right now Nothing's in my way This is Dr. Jess Online coming to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania in the United States. And I get to say good evening to the United States, and today I get to say good morning to Australia, because that's where our guest is coming from. And I'm going to introduce our guest right this second. Uh, My mouth will work. Okay, I have the honor of welcoming back Eliza Lambert, who is from, I'm not going to say Logan Home, Australia. I don't know what QLD means, but I guess it means Queensland. Yep, Queensland. <clears throat> I see, I was right. I don't know where it is, but it's, you know, <laughs> kind of know what the abbreviations mean. Okay. Her prior appearance on our on our podcast was so well received, received that I asked her if she'd be a regular guest, and she accepted. And we're going to talk about different um, different things. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, your hormones and metabolic system. Okay, and I'll explain that in a second. Uh, a little bit about Eliza. Eliza is a uh, naturopath, homeopath, and registered GAPS practitioner with training in MAPS, which is the uh, Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs, uh, which is for autism. She's got a special interest in nutrigenomics, digestive disorders, mental health, and autoimmune diseases. Gee, sounds like somebody on this side of the pond. Sorry. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> she has been in practice for 14 years. Her journey in health began in earnest when, when her eldest son didn't start talking until age three uh, and displayed Asperger's with ADD traits, ADHD traits. Moving away from the medical model, she focused on removing infections in his gut, eliminating food intolerances, correcting nutritional deficiencies, and reestablishing neural connections in the brain with various exercises. Yes! Anyway, today he's a handsome young teenager. I know, I've seen him. He's a good-looking good boy. Uh, with no developmental, developmental or social differences between him and his peers. You know something? That's what we call a warrior mom, okay? Eliza <laughs> continually increases her knowledge and is a true healer. Guys, i got to tell you, I, I've, met, I've met Eliza, you know, at one of our conferences, and I have, I have weekly discussions with her as we go over different cases and so forth. And everybody listening in Australia, i got to tell you, this, is, this person is the real deal. You, everybody wants... A specialist. Everybody wants a specialist. And then we've responded both in traditional and alternative medicine with specializations. I specialize in Byron White. I specialize in, you know, treating herbal Lyme. I specialize in it. You know something, people? We don't need specialists. we got too many of them. We need generalists. 
we need the old the old doctors that can put all the puzzle pieces together and then send you to a specialist if it's necessary get somebody if there's some super sub kind of knowledge that's you don't need specialists. You need somebody who's got the passion and who is willing to put the time in in you, take a history, and figure out what the heck is wrong. Do you know why people are sick today? Because everybody's a specialist. So the specialists look at you with this nice myopic view with their nice lens, and they're very good at what they do, but they don't put everything else in there. And you all know it. You'll go see the cardiologist doesn't want to know about anything else. You go see the orthopedist doesn't want to know about anything else. You go see the gynecologist, they don't want to know about anything else. Okay, you see the internist and you need, you know, oh, well, you need to see an endocrinologist. No, you need a doctor that can put it all together because nobody's doing it. And guess who's responsible for doing it if your healthcare provider's not? You are. Okay, the person least trained to do it is the one making decisions like which specialist I should go to. So if you have a belly pain and you're a woman, should you see the gynecologist, the gastroenterologist? And who should you see? The orthopedist, the chiropractor? You don't know. And you shouldn't have to know. You should, have to, you should be able to go to a doctor, a healthcare provider, who has the capability and the experience and the passion to put it all together. And the person I'm going to be talking to in about five seconds is that person. Okay, I've never met somebody who asks me so many questions that I, she has me even scratching my head. And that's kind of vicarious <laughs> thrill because I don't have any hair. You know, but, um, <laughs> you know, hopefully she will, she will take her commentary and take it out of sixth gear and put it into fifth gear this time because I know she's still like, okay, I'm going to let everybody know everything in the next five minutes. Wait. Okay, but anyway, <laughs> seriously, if you want somebody who can put these puzzle pieces together and has the desire to deal with complex multifactorial conditions and who is also a methylation and nutrigenomic expert, somebody who really knows how to put the genes together, not just dangling the one pathway in front of you because there are a lot of pathways. Okay, and I keep telling everybody, stop concentrating on methylation, please, because there's only one pathway, okay, and there's a lot of other pathways, and I name them all, and then everybody's like, oh, impressed, you can, you can name all the pathways, and like, yeah, big deal. Okay, <laughs> I'm just trying to tell you that you have to be able to put them all together. And frankly, this individual, this very, very intelligent, very motivated healthcare provider is one of those people. Trust me, I don't mentor anybody. I mentor very few people. And those people who I mentor are healers. And this woman is a healer. Eliza, was that good enough of an introduction? Oh, that's so well said, uh, Dr. (laughs) Jess. Very well said. And you read my mind. I've got all these charts and notes in front of me and I know I'm going to get so complicated today and you're going to have to pull me back. No, you're not because I'm going to interrupt you. The fact is I know you, 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 you're like me when I first started. You over-prepare, you know, and oh, then it definitely. becomes a big mishmash, but it's okay because Remember, over-preparing means that you care and you're really, really trying hard. It's the people who un- under-prepare and then try and uh, let's say, let's put it this way. There's a saying in the United States is you can either dazzle them with brilliance or baffle them with uh, BS, you know? Um, <laughs> yep. So you're going to dazzle them with brilliance, you know? So anyway, this is kind of an interesting subject, the interplay of hormones and metabolic syndrome. Um, I think we all know what hormones are, uh, although we tend to think of them just sex hormones. Uh, but just to get everybody up to speed, could you explain again what metabolic syndrome is? Yeah, okay, so um, if I remember from my uh, last podcast, metabolic syndrome is pretty much where you get sort of uh, 
uh, a, com a combination of symptoms that includes insulin resistance, um, high cholesterol levels. It's pretty much when things go wrong in the cells and the body loses the ability to to produce energy from the food that you eat. And so it starts to accumulate and it causes fatty liver and, you know, you get fatigued and you get uh, 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 fertility problems and cholesterol problems. Um, so it's it's a very prevalent issue in today's society and um, uh, people will display it differently. So some people will develop type 2 diabetes and some will get heart disease and some will get Alzheimer's disease. But it's sort of where that that um, your body just doesn't know what to do with glucose and fats because things have gone wrong somewhere in the system um, and then it starts to have this global and snowball effect on other systems in your body like your hormones and your energy levels and the mitochondrial function and the liver function and, and all of those things. Um, so, you know, last time uh, Dr. Jesse spoke a little bit about, um, we probably focused more on a microbiome and the uh, gut organisms and so, like you said, this time I thought we would delve a little bit into the hormones. And as you said, it's not just the sex hormones. You can pretty much um, uh, divide the hormones that's involved in metabolic syndrome into the gut hormones, into the steroid hormones, which includes the sex hormones, and also into the fat hormones, because fat can actually uh, become an endocrine organ itself and, produce, and, and have hormone regulatory effects. And so because we always start with what we eat, I thought we would start with the gut hormones. And um, if, if we had to sort of like break it down, the first thing that will happen is if your stomach has been empty for um, a period of time, um, you get the secretion of this hormone called ghrelin in the stomach. And ghrelin triggers peptides in the brain that then tells you that you are hungry. So you have, you know, your stomach growls and you get this message that you're hungry and so you start to eat food. And um, this ghrelin hormone, and, you know, we'll get a little bit into the circadian rhythms of a lot of these hormones because they all work well at certain times of the day. Um, and ghrelin specifically, um, your highest levels of ghrelin is around midnight to dawn um, when you're sleeping. And that's when you, when you wake up, you will feel really hungry and you'll be ready for breakfast. And when you eat, you know, you get sort of like uh, your stomach acid being released and gastrin hormones being released. And eventually those, that food moves down to the small intestine. And in the small intestine, we get a different set of hormones called incretins. Um, and incretins, uh, they include, there's quite a few of them, but the ones that I'll sort of be talking about today, uh, there's three main ones called, and I'm just going to use the abbreviations because I don't think it's important to know the big long names, but it's CCK, GIP, and GLP-1. Now, on in your small you mean, you intestine... Mean you don't want to say cholecystokinin? Oh, I can say just it, say, yes. You know, I yeah. just say it 10 times fast, they'll get it. <laughs> All right, okay. So you've got your CCK, sorry, which is your, <laughs> your cholecystokinin. You've got your GLP-1, which is... Um, no, you're um, right. The overview is better. I was just, I was just uh, joshing right. with you. <laughs> okay. And so on the small intestine, you've got these, um, you know, finger-like projections, which is where a lot of your enzymes sit, um, but you also have the receptors for these gut hormones that sit on there. So even though we're not really talking about the microbiome today, you can imagine that if you've got issues with the microbiome, if you've got celiac disease or leaky gut or SIBO or any kind of inflammation in the gut, it's going to affect those receptors um, where, where these incretin hormones have to go and sit on and, and trigger 
uh, blood sugar control and um, appetite control. So it's very important to keep the gut healthy. Um, and another interesting fact is that your healthy bacteria, if, you're, if you chew your food properly and you have a lot of fiber in your meal, the healthy bacteria will actually change that fiber into short-chain fatty acids. And the short-chain fatty acids and the fact that you've chewed your food properly will actually make those ingredients work better. So good sort of food hygiene, if you, if you want to call it that, is actually really, really important to keep gut hormones working. And ingredients are specifically important because they actually trigger um, insulin release and uh, they regulate about 50% of, of insulin production even before we get to the pancreas. So we haven't even talked about blood sugar and insulin within the blood. We're just still talking about the gut. But this already starts happening when you eat your food because it's like the pancreas have to prepare themselves. They're like, well, there's going to be some glucose coming, so we need to get ready. Um, and if this doesn't work, then the, the blood sugar can rise so quickly that the pancreas gets sort of taken by surprise, and then it just produces a whole bunch of insulin in one go, and this is when you start, sort of start getting insulin resistance and problems there. Um, now, these ingredients, they work best around 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., so that's actually the, the best time to eat, between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., and it fits in very well with the concept of uh, intermittent fasting, where a lot of people are trying to sort of do overnight fast of 16 hours or so. Um, and if you want to follow, follow sort of like a gut hormone circadian rhythm, then 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. is your best time to eat. Um, when these gut hormones now get released in response to food, um, they've got quite a few functions. And like I said, one of the big ones is insulin control but they also make you feel full. They're the, they're the satiety hormones. So they're the ones that send the message to the brain and says, hey, I've had enough to eat. I don't need to eat more. And you stop feeling hungry. So if things go wrong here, then you're not going to get that signal that tells you that you've had enough to eat. And this is typically what you see in people who just keep on eating, keep on eating, and keep on eating. Um, one of the um, important hormones is CCK. That one is, has actually got a little bit of a specialized function, uh, whereas all of them pretty much gets released in response to food. So this is glucose, carbohydrates, fats, etc. CCK especially gets released when there's fat in your, in your meal. Um, and this is because CCK then has to tell the gallbladder to go and release bile. And then bile, uh, pancreatic enzymes and bicarbonates, they all get dumped into the small intestine. And the bile is then needed to break down the fats in your food and then you and also then obviously to um, absorb all your fat-soluble vitamins like your A, D, E, and K. And if you just take vitamin D for, for a moment, that acts like a hormone in itself because vitamin D is needed for a lot of receptors to function properly and this will include your insulin receptors and your leptin receptors. And I mean, there's a stack full of studies that's been that's linked vitamin D deficiency to uh, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. So we know that vitamin D is very important for um, that aspect in blood sugar control. But then a further function of the bile is then to also keep the gut healthy. You know, it's your natural laxative, it keeps the bowels moving, it kills off um, alkali-sensitive pathogenic bacteria. So the more we can keep that microbiome healthy, the better those increasing gut hormones are going to work and the better your appetite control is going to happen. Um, a very big important function of bile is to produce cholesterol, um, or sorry, to convert cholesterol into bile acids. 
Um, so this is a way the body can actually get rid of cholesterol. Because remember now, cholesterol, if it stores in the liver, you get that fatty liver, which is part of that metabolic syndrome. So you want to get rid of that cholesterol as best as you can, either through burning it up for energy, but this is a really, really good way where your body can use cholesterol to make bile salts. And that uh, is actually a really, really interesting pathway. If you look at that, um, and this is, it's going to sound a little bit complicated, but you'll sort of get the point in why I'm <laughs> breaking it down a little bit like that. But uh, cholesterol actually has to go through an enzyme called Site7A1. It's one of the liver enzymes, and that's how cholesterol gets turned into bile salts. Now, once you've made enough bile salts, then the bile salts will go back. It'll slow down that enzyme because it doesn't, you don't need to make any more bile salts. They'll say, hey, I've got enough bile salts. I don't need to make more. But one of the other things that can also slow that down that enzyme is infections, inflammation, and streptospirosis. The difference being that if infection is slowing down that enzyme, you're not making any bile salts. You're just pretty much heating up cholesterol because the cholesterol is not going anywhere. So um, it's very important not to have inflammation um, that, that can do that. And then when you are making bile salts, you know, it's made up of quite a couple of ingredients. You get your taurine, your glycine in about equal amounts. Cholesterol is obviously part of bile salts, and then phospholipids is part of bile salts. And if you have, you know, and, and making bile salts is a bit like making a cake. Um, if you're missing one of these ingredients, then you're not going to make a uh, uh, a very nice cake. You know, maybe you'll be able to make a cake, but it's not going to taste that great. So if you've got a lot of cholesterol, but you're missing taurine, you're missing glycine, or you're missing phospholipids, you're not going to be able to make uh, those bile salts. And then that's going to affect your digestion, it's going to affect the gut environment, um, and you're going to have cholesterol just building up, building up, building up, because it's got nowhere else to go. Um, and a very, very interesting fact that I picked up is the and I'm going to mention this enzyme because you did sort of mention statins in the first podcast. There's an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase, which is responsible for making cholesterol. And that is the enzyme that statins block. So that's why you, you know, a lot of medical practitioners put their clients or their patients on statins is to stop cholesterol production. And it's that enzyme, HMG-CoA reductase, that makes the cholesterol. But the interesting thing is, is that bile salts will actually inhibit that enzyme as well. So bile salts will stop the production of cholesterol. And I'm thinking, well, why would you take a statin if you can just make bile salts and it'll do exactly the same thing? And in that way, you're actually getting rid of your cholesterol, you're getting rid of that fat in the liver, um, and you're making bile, which is going to make your, your gut environment so much healthier, you're going to, you know, it's, it's, and it's going to make those incretin gut hormones work so much better, break down your um, fat absorb your fat-soluble vitamins and make, you know, get your vitamin D and your vitamin A and all of those things. Um, one of the things that um, can really, really influence is inflammation because inflammation is going to speed up that HMG-CoA reductase enzyme and make more cholesterol, but at the same time, it's going to block at site 7A1 and not make bile salts. So you're going to get cholesterol sort of in the middle between these two enzymes where it's you're making it at a rapid rate, but you're not actually converting it into, into bile salts, and that will just then heat up. And that's one of the big mechanisms on why inflammation and high insulin and high leptin causes high cholesterol levels and fatty liver. Um, so that's sort of like, you know, where bile fits into, uh, into that aspect of things. And as you know, with phospholipids, which is one of those key ingredients in bile, what do you need to make phospholipids? You need choline, and you need a good functioning methylation cycle to make phospholipids. 
Um, and that is how methylation, you know, can have a real big role to play in metabolic syndrome and in fatty liver. Um, the other aspect of uh, bile, if we get back to bile, um, it is also very important to bind to a lot of your excess hormones like your estrogens and uh, xenoestrogens and other toxins. Um, and if you do not have enough bile to bind to these toxins, then they will simply just get reabsorbed from the uh, small intestine into the uh, enterohepatic circulation. And then your body has this mechanism. If it has too much, too many toxins to deal with, and it cannot actually um, get rid of them because, um, let's say, your methylation cycle is not working very well, then you're gonna, your body will sort of like get this mechanism where it'll try and protect itself. And the way that it protects itself is it will actually make fat around the toxins. So uh, it, instead of, you know, it'll try to protect itself so that the toxins cannot actually cause inflammation or damage in the kidneys or damage in the liver. It'll just form fat cells around these toxins and accumulate them. And a lot of people who actually are overweight or have fatty liver is just because they're very toxic. Um, and they will also find it very hard to lose weight because it's like the body just doesn't want to let go of it. It's just like, I'm not ready to get, get let go of it because you are not ready to detoxify or your systems are not in place to detoxify. So those people will really, really hold on to fat. And then, you know, as the fat cells become more and more and more and you put on weight, then you end up with this scenario where fat then uh, becomes, um, um, the fat cells can then start to act like a, a hormone itself, like an endocrine organ itself. And and produce these hormones that we call um, adipokines. I hope I said that correctly. I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. But um, adipokines are pretty much the hormones that fat cells will then start to release. And they've released quite a few of them. They release, um, uh, there's quite a few of them. I don't know all of them, but two of the main ones is your adiponectin and your leptin. And if you just quickly look at adiponectin, that is sort of like seen as the good guy. It's the, the fat hormone that actually helps to break down fat and burn fat. Um, but the, the trick with adiponectin is that you actually, the, the less fat you have, the more adiponectin you produce. So you actually, the thinner you are, you're, the more adiponectin you'll have. And you'll actually have to lose weight in order to start losing more weight. So if you already have a lot of fat cells, you're not going to be producing a lot of adiponectin. And there's also other things like inflammation, uh, low oxygen levels. A lot of these things will really suppress those adiponectin levels and make it really, really hard for you to lose weight. One of the things that can actually stimulate adiponectin levels is uh, fasting and being in ketosis. Uh, in the initial days of fasting and ketosis, you will have higher adiponectin levels, and that will kickstart that fat burning process and get them moving through a lot quicker. The other adipo, uh, adipocrine hormone is called leptin, and this is the satiety hormone. This is what makes you feel full. Um, leptin works on the same brain uh, peptides as ghrelin, which we sort of like talked about way in the beginning in the gut. They actually work on the same neuropeptides, but ghrelin will stimulate hunger, whereas leptin will actually make you feel full. And leptin, just like cortisol, also has that circadian rhythm going for it. So at around 2 a.m. in the morning is when you'll have the highest leptin levels. And so that's when you should not be feeling hungry. Um, and leptin, 
apart from making you feel full, it also stimulates the mitochondria to produce energy because it's like it sends a message to your brain or to your body and saying, look, I've, I've got enough fuel, I don't need to eat more, but I need to start burning this fuel that I've accumulated during the day. And so your body will actually, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll trigger the, the mitochondria to start and burn all this fuel into, into energy or ATP. And this is actually quite important because your brain uses more energy when you're sleeping than when you're awake. And it actually needs to produce a lot of energy. And if it doesn't, like if there is an issue with your, with your um, leptin, like if you're not producing enough leptin around that time or you don't have, uh, you've got some kind of mitochondrial dysfunction and not making enough ATP, your brain will wake you, will wake you up. It will say, look, I need fuel. You need to fuel me. And then that will really disrupt your um, sleeping patterns and uh, circadian rhythm and also the circadian rhythm of a whole bunch of other hormones like your cortisol and your leptin as well and that's going to make it really really hard for you to lose weight. The time of the day where you actually have the lowest leptin levels is around 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So that's around lunchtime and if you have low leptin levels that's when you're going to feel the hungriest. So it's actually between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. is the best time to have your biggest meal um, because that is the ideal time when your uh, body will be ready to, um, to to receive food and then get all those blood hormones going and get the leptin release going. Um, one of the things that can happen is if you're constantly eating, um, you know, which is what a lot of people do, is you've got to sort of like look, look at what the effect of that's going to have. If you're like, um, you know, eating like six small meals a day or you're just constantly snacking, you're going to be continually uh, stimulating those uh, increasing gut hormones, the GLP-1, CCK, and the GIP hormones. And this is going to uh, trigger, a con you know, like an insulin release from the pancreas. And like I said, if you're constantly eating, it's not going to get a break. You're just going to get this continual insulin release. Uh, you're going to raise your blood sugar levels. And by raising your blood sugar levels, you know, a lot of that glucose can be turned into triglycerides. And um, it's also going to increase your body fat. And when you have high triglycerides in the, in the blood and you, and you increase your body fat, you're going to be producing more leptin. Because remember, fat's like, a, like an endocrine organ. The more fat you have, the more leptin you're going to produce. And then you eventually end up with uh, a syndrome called leptin resistance. And leptin resistance is very similar to insulin resistance. You need leptin, but it needs to be in balance because it can be inflammatory and it can be anti-inflammatory. And when uh, you are producing too much leptin, eventually those receptors will just become resistant and they won't respond anymore. And, you know, I sometimes like to sort of explain the whole leptin resistance thing as a nightclub scenario. So if you imagine like the cell is like the nightclub and, you know, the leptin receptors are the bouncers and uh, the people wanting to come into the nightclub are the leptin molecules. If you sort of like look at the early evening and you just have a few people coming to the nightclub, you know, the bouncers let them in quickly into the nightclub and everything runs quite smoothly. But, you know, when it, as it gets later into the evening and there's just a lot of people, you know, it's 11, 11 o'clock at night and everyone wants to go to the nightclub, um, they just bombard the, the bouncers and the bouncers just freak out and they're just like, look, uh, there's too many people here. We don't know what to do with it. So they'll just close the doors and they won't let any more people into the nightclub. And that is exactly what happens. So you have all these leptin people now standing outside the nightclub with nowhere to go. You've got the leptin receptor bouncers who refuse to listen to the people and refuse to let them in. And nothing is actually getting into the cell. 
And remember that leptin has to tell the mitochondria to burn energy. So if leptin is not getting into the cell, the mitochondria does not get the message that it has to start to start to burn this fuel up. And if you have low mitochondrial function, then your metabolism is going to slow down. And if your metabolism slows down, you're going to find it really, really hard to lose weight. Um, with the leptin resistance itself, leptin resistance creates a whole bunch of inflammation. Um, and this inflammation uh, will then, you know, as we've already spoken about the effect that inflammation is going to have on bile salt formation and cholesterol, it's going to feed back into that where you're going to have more cholesterol production and less of that cholesterol being turned into bile salt. So you're going to have low bile and high cholesterol. And that's, again, going right back to the gut where it's really, really going to affect um, uh, how the, those gut hormones work and the, the cholesterol accumulating in the liver causing fatty liver issues. Um, one way that the leptin resistance also feeds back into insulin is that the inflammation that is produced by leptin resistance can cause um, a, a decrease in magnesium levels uh, because you're using up a lot more magnesium because of the inflammation. And then that can cause uh, the pH levels to become a little bit disrupted and that can also cause insulin to become disrupted. And then that can sort of like end up being an insulin resistant scenario as well. And when you become insulin resistant, your fat cells tend to become bigger to allow for more triglycerides and fats to be stored in these fat cells. And as your fat cells get bigger, what happens? You, you, you put on more weight, you get more body fat. And again, you're feeding back into that whole fat hormone cascade where, uh, you know, the more fat you have, the more leptin you produce. And it, it all just becomes this really, really vicious circle. Uh, that's sort of like looking at sort of like the fat hormones and uh, the gut hormones. Now, there isn't any questions so far, Dr. Jess? No, but I'm going to have you. I'm going to have you lecture at my next seminar. <laughs> I mean, really. Okay. I, mean, I was following you along real good. I'm just kind of hanging out, saying I don't have any real questions just yet. But what I would okay, like cool. you to do, what I would like you to do, is slow down just a bit and go and circle back to a couple of things. Yep. Um, I always try and look at things from from the uh, my patient's point of view. Um, if you could go back to cholesterol, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, because we're told that cholesterol is the is you know the worst thing on the planet. You know, and mm. I know that the reason that they that they give you statins instead of telling you to chew your food well and put fiber and so forth is because the statins are giving them billions of dollars and chewing your food well isn't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we also <laughs> sure. know that statins interfere with a lot of. Uh, remember the lecture that was given by um, by Susie Cohen um, called uh, uh, "Medicine Induced Snips." Okay, where yeah. normal polymorph normal genes were were given polymorphism like qualities by using different medicines, and the statins was one of the major ones, especially the me the methylation pathway. But um, since since you know you always hear me yelling about methylation, everybody calm down, right? But the other thing I yell about, but you don't hear too much about it, is <laughs> because you don't hear me yelling, is about <laughs> cholesterol. Okay, cholesterol to me is um, I've tried I've tried to downregulate the concern about cholesterol, okay, because, um, first of all, I, I don't think it's a major, it's the major reason for cardiac uh, problems. That's never mm -hmm. been proven. Two, uh, when you look at the lab tests and you see cholesterol, then you see uh, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, VLDL cholesterol. Those aren't cholesterols. Those are lipoproteins. 
Okay, and they, the only reason they, they tacked on the word cholesterol is so they could start prescribing statins at you. Okay, so now that I've gotten all cynical on everybody, um, could you go back and explain the – can you explain the benefits of cholesterol when it is <clears throat> by itself high cholesterol? What does it mean? What does it mean within this pathway? What can people do with it in reality? I, I was picking up as you were talking – you know, what I could do to normalize my bile flow, normalize my cholesterol output and intake. And, and cholesterol is also very important in the hormone cascade. Oh, okay. Yes, so if, I, if you just kind of circle back and spend a little time on cholesterol, because I know for a fact that people, you know, as soon as you say the word cholesterol, it's sort of like, Bleh! you know, dog sits with the ears go up, you know? And, um, yeah. you know, you're... The, um, you know, the CCK and the leptins and the, and I can't pronounce it either, out of kinins, you know, um, that's, that's a little bit in the rarefied atmosphere, which is important that we know that they're there, but it's more important we know what to do about it. Okay. And how to make, but cholesterol is something that everybody's real, 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 real oriented to. So if you could spend just a little time on that, I think that that would benefit everybody who's listening. Yeah. Okay. So. Definitely. This is what is this is why I do to her people. She does this to me all the time. She goes and said, but you forgot to mention this or think about this. And she goes, <laughs> and then you see her get all kinds of sweaty and nervous. Oh, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sweating now. <laughs> okay. So, um, if I get anything wrong, you know, just interrupt me because yeah, no, I didn't. There's uh, no wrong um, here. There's no wrong. There's no right, wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay it's, it's giving information. It's overview. You know, you're giving some technical stuff. Come back out to the overview because people want to know practicality. They want to know what's going on with their bodies, and they want to know who to believe, you know, when mm-hmm. people start talking. And, you know, this is putting cholesterol and um, the hormones and everything into the metabolic or the gastrointestinal system, which is the way nobody thinks about it, okay? You yeah. know, we, we they want to know how – their diet affects their hormones and how that, how they can help normalize, you know, this bad PMT or PMS or, or thyroid hormone. How can we do this whole thing, but it's something that we never do, you know, so we may not yeah. have to use hormone replacement therapy. You know, there's other things that can be done. So that's why I'm asking you to circle around a little bit. Okay. Besides, it's my so, job to, to throw a monkey wrench. Yeah, in no. It's a, it's a very, very good point because cholesterol is definitely, definitely not the bad guy. You know, um, I also I get very sort of annoyed when um, practitioners, uh, you know, focus on cholesterol as the thing that needs to be reduced. And, you know, um, ultimately, cholesterol is a, it's a it's a um, it's when you most of the time when cholesterol goes up, it's because you're eating too much sugar. Because one of the things is when you when you become insulin resistant or you're just eating a whole bunch of carbs and you're having these, this high blood sugar, your body will not really know what to do with it. The only thing it can do with it if you're not burning it off because you're not exercising and you're just eating way too much that's that's good for you, your body won't have anything else to do with it than to actually turn it into cholesterol. So it's just the way that the body, I guess, goes and stores energy. Um, but cholesterol in itself is super important for steroid hormones. I mean, we, we needed to make DHEA, and, which then goes on to pregnenolone and progesterone and estrogen and testosterone. If we don't have cholesterol, we just don't make hormones. Um, and you also need to make cortisol. It's that, uh, um, the, you know, the, the stress hormone. I mean, all of us 
most of us will have really high cortisol levels and we need actually cholesterol to make that. You know, something that I actually typically see is people who've had chronic stress for a long, long period of time will actually have very low cholesterol levels because it's just all being uh, dumped down that steroid um, hormone cortisol pathway. Um, and so uh, cholesterol in itself is not the issue. Cholesterol only becomes a problem when it is combined with inflammation and when it's combined with immune activation. And the only time when you will actually really get inflamed, you know, uh, if there is going to be inflammation is when there is infection going on or when there's this whole scenario of leptin resistance and insulin resistance, which we've just sort of like went through how the gut and the gut hormones can actually trigger that insulin resistance uh, from, you know, just from eating your food uh, or not eating your food properly, not eating enough fiber. Um, when you get that insulin resistance and that leptin resistance cascade, that's going to create inflammation. And when you have inflammation in combination with, uh, with the cholesterol in the blood vessels, um, only then will you start making that cholesterol become dysfunctional, where it will start to oxidize. Uh, and then where it can start uh, turning into oxidized LDL. Because again, not all LDL is bad. You know, when you get a standard cholesterol panel and all they check is cholesterol, LDL, and HDL, that LDL can still be broken down into VLDL and um, some, you know, other LDL uh, fractions. And um, some of those LDL particles, uh, you get sort of like your your big LDL particles and your smaller LDL particles. And it's, um, if I remember correctly, I think it's the smaller LDL particles that are atherogenic and the big LDL particles are actually not. And, um, you know, even though this was not really something that I was going to talk about today, there's a, there's a very, was a very, very interesting study done on the ketogenic diet where um, they tested the cholesterol levels of a lot of people who were on a ketogenic diet. And obviously, uh, uh, you know, what they found is that uh, their LDL levels in this group of people that were studied actually went up. But when they dissected it, when they actually broke that LDL into the subfractions, they found that most of the, the they found that the big LDL or the foam, the, the big LDL particles actually increased and the smaller ones actually decreased. So in essence, the atherogenic LDL actually was a whole lot less on a ketogenic diet, whereas the protective LDL, uh, you know, um, increased um, a lot more. Um, and, you know, if we go back to, to cholesterol and we look at the oxidation of cholesterol, which is really the issue, it's, it's more the oxidation, not the cholesterol itself, but it's the, the fact that it oxidizes, um, you know, you can tie that back into the methylation cycle as well, because if you have a dysfunctional methylation cycle and you do not make adequate glutathione, um, then that's going to put you at risk for um, increased glycation. And glycation is, is pretty much where um, you have sugar molecules that will either attach to proteins or attach to fat cells, and then it, it, turns them, it makes them dysfunctional. So if, if you have low glutathione levels, um, it's going to open you up to oxi more oxidative stress. And when you have more oxidative stress, it's going to put you at risk for that glycation. And that's when the fat cells will start to oxidize. And it's then when they, be, when they oxidize where they become more atherogenic. Um, so cholesterol in itself, uh, you know, you can have high cholesterol levels with absolutely no problem. There has to be other parameters in place for it to become a problem with, um, with, uh, in terms of heart disease, um, et cetera. Otherwise, I think we're, we're missing the, the, the boat and it, in, in the fact that we fail to see that it's absolutely important for sex hormone synthesis, especially when you go through, um, 
you know, as men and women get older, they, their sex hormones drop off. And that's when they need cholesterol to make those hormones. And that's the exact time when people will be put on statins to try and stop cholesterol production. And that's going to be counterproductive in menopausal women who are trying to get their estrogen levels up or men who um, are starting to lose, uh, you know, their the testosterone levels start to drop off. And so they, the ratio between their testosterone and their estrogen starts to become skewed. And if their testosterone starts to drop off um, because there's not enough cholesterol for them to make uh, testosterone, you know, they're going to start accumulating more fat. That in itself is going to start producing more leptin. And, um, you know, there we go again with the whole, you know, too much leptin, inflammation, leptin resistance and all of that. So, yeah, I, I think we... We need to stop looking at cholesterol as the bad guy and I think look more at oxidative stress and inflammation as the bad guys because they're the ones that changes the function of proteins and lipids such uh-huh. as cholesterol in the body. <clears throat> That's where it all comes down to. It all comes down to inflammation, okay, yeah. and what causes inflammation. And inflammation is what changes things around. And what what um is telling you people is that um, whereas inflammation is the is the big bad guy, okay, and it is the big bad guy, okay. It's what causes the inflammation that we have to attend to attend to. Also, there's many reasons for it, and when you get to a certain point, the inflammation kind of feeds on itself, and then the fat cells itself can actually contribute, if not cause, a ton of inflammation in and of itself. Not to mention the leaky gut and all the other downstream effects of whatever the original root causes were. Yep, she's just yeah. she, she's what she's doing is 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 laying it out the re, laying out the reasons for it, you know, which is you know astute and and absolutely accurate. Uh, but that's what it really comes down to. Inflammation is the enemy. Actually, yep. fear is the enemy, but the next enemy is inflammation. But we won't speak of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, there, oh. are, I'm very sure people are you know are really interested in how fat acts as its own endocrine organ and releases its own uh, hormones. I know you, you touched on it, but if you could loop back to that and then um, kind of tell us how sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone and things like uh, PMS, PMT, uh, low testosterone all fit into that. Um, I know you were just talking about it, but uh, it was going a little bit over my head. So um, maybe we can zip around that and then perhaps uh, going into starvation, why don't starvation diets work, as you were talking about, intermittent fasting. Um, mm. And, um, you know, the benefits and detriments of the ketogenic diets. Yep. Okay. So we'll, we'll, I'll sort of like loop back a little bit to the, to the whole leptin and insulin thing, because um, there, there is something quite interesting there, um, because often, you know, I, I use leptin and insulin very similarly, because they they tend to go hand in hand. Like when you get insulin resistance, you generally have leptin resistance as well. And you, and you generally see both leptin and insulin resistance in overweight people or obese people. Um, and it's because they're both, uh, you know, fueled by inflammation, they will generally follow a, a very, very similar pathway. Um, and so, you know, if we go back to um, in, 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 um, insulin and it will definitely flow on to leptin as well. Is remember how I said that the uh, gut hormones or the incretins like GIP and GLP-1, you know, once you've eaten, those incretin hormones get released and they go and sit on the receptors. Well, they're the ones, as you uh, remember, they they are responsible for about 50% of the body's insulin production. So they prepare the body for the glucose that's going to come into the bloodstream. 
And so when you get um, insulin released, it pretty much gets released into two phases, you know, phase one and a phase two. And the first phase lasts for maybe 10 minutes or so. And then there's a second phase that will last for several hours. And that phase is triggered when glucose, uh, you know, triggers calcium channels to open on the, the pancreatic beta cells, and then that allows insulin to come out of pancreatic beta cells into the bloodstream. Now, the problem comes when, that, when those two phases are actually melt, melting together. In other words, they're not two distinct phases anymore, but they become one big phase. That's um, when you get type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. And the triggers that will sort of melt those two phases together is inflammation, uh, cortisol, uh, high glutamate levels, all of those things will uh, cause, uh, well, it will reduce that distinction between phase one and phase two, and so you end up with insulin resistance. Now, why this is important is because um, there's a, you know, the fancy name for fat breakdown is called lipolysis. So lipolysis is pretty much when you break down fat. And the paradigm we, we understand about insulin resistance at this point in time is we sort of like see insulin as either a dysfunction, uh, insulin resistance as a dysfunction of pancreatic beta cells brought on by things like high glutamates, for instance, or as an inflammatory condition like we've just talked about with um, you know, infections and, and, and inflammation, et cetera. But there's, there's sort of like another kind of avenue that you can look at insulin resistance as well. And this is through lipolysis. Because insulin itself will actually inhibit lipolysis or it will inhibit fat breakdown. And um, this is sort of a, another mechanism on how it controls blood glucose. Because if insulin stops fat breakdown, then you're not going to get, uh, the fats are not going to sort of break into smaller fatty acids. Those fatty acids are not going to go into the liver and be turned into glucose through gluconeogenesis. Um, and that's a way that insulin will actually regulate glucose levels in the blood. But now if you become insulin resistant or you're just simply not producing enough insulin, maybe because you're type 1 diabetic, you're, not, you're going to lose that control on lipolysis or fat breakdown. And then what's going to happen is you're going to have more fats breaking down into fatty acids. That's going to go to the liver, get turned into glucose. That glucose is going to trigger insulin. And insulin, if it becomes uncontrolled, you get this uncontrolled cycle, it's going to feed back into insulin resistance, and it's going to keep that, loop, uh, keep that loop going. Now, inflammation is, going, is one of the things that will actually fuel that lipolysis cycle as well. And like I said, insulin resistance will fuel it as well. But one of the things that will actually block that is ketones. So ketones is produced when you, um, people go on low-carb diets or they fast or uh, they're on a ketogenic diet. And um, one of the interesting aspects, um, you know, it ties in a little bit with this sort of lipolysis scenario, is if you go on a low-carb diet or you go onto a ketogenic diet or you fast, initially what happens is because now you're not stimulating those uh, incretin hormones. So the message does not go to the, the, the pancreas doesn't get a message that it has to secrete insulin. So in general, your insulin levels will be quite low. It'll be quite suppressed. That in itself will trigger this lipolysis cycle and get more fat being broken down into glucose. So sometimes what you can see in people who follow a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet or they're fasting is in the first few days, their blood sugar levels will actually increase. Um, and that can, you know, some people could be worried about that. But as the body gets into ketosis, 
then those ketones will actually end up having a similar function to insulin in that it'll actually block the further breakdown of fat. And that's an interesting thing because we've always thought about ketogenic diets and ketones as well will burn a whole bunch of fat. It's not quite like that. Like the body has a very, very tight control on these things. So when you produce ketones because you're fasting or you're on a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet, um, ketones is like a little storage form of energy because the body breaks down fat, it turns it into uh, ketones such as uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that's like a little storage form of energy. And when you have enough beta-hydroxybutyrate, um, your body will say, look, I don't need any more fuel. I've got now my little storage form of fuel. Stop breaking down fat because I don't know how long this person is going to fast for or not eat. So I just want to you know, make sure there's still some fat there that we can break down at a later stage. I've got enough beta-hydroxybutyrate to get me going. And so ketones in itself will actually stop fat breakdown. However, if you exercise or you use up those ketones in any other way, then your beta-hydroxybutyrate levels will drop and immediately fat burning will kick in again. So your body will be like, okay, I don't have enough beta-hydroxybutyrate, uh, so I need to start burning fat again. And this is one of the reasons why starvation diets don't work, because if you just starve yourself um, and you're just producing a whole bunch of ketones or beta-hydroxybutyrate specifically, it's going to sort of like inhibit that, uh, um, that uh, fat breakdown process um, it'll only really work if you're doing some kind of an exercise with it. That's probably how you'll get the, um, the best results in terms of, uh, you know, fasting, if, if weight loss was sort of the, um, the whole point behind it. Um, but that is sort of like a way that uh, ketones can have a very similar function as insulin on fat breakdown. But one of the things that uh, starvation and long-term fasting can do as well, and, you know, we sort of like categorize uh, that as being having less than 1,100 calories a day. That'll sort of like be um, what we would call um, long-term fasting or starving yourself. Um, if you do that for a long enough time, those gut hormones, the incretins, they will be suppressed because there's no food that triggers their release. So they will just be suppressed. And, they, uh, uh, and if it goes on for long enough, um, then they can be suppressed for up to even a year. You know, I was quite surprised when I read a study on that. I didn't realize they could be suppressed for that long. But then um, what happens is if those incretins are suppressed for that long, remember, you need them to, to release insulin. So if, you, if they're not being triggered, then you're not going to release insulin. And if you don't release insulin, that's also going to stop fat breakdown because, remember, you need... Uh, um, 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 it's going to feed back into that insulin resistance and um, uh, create that lipolysis effect where um, you're going to just make more glucose into the bloodstream. And also, if, you're, if your CCK is suppressed for long enough, then your bile production will start to go down as well. Um, and yeah, your blood sugar levels will start to go up through gluconeogenesis. And when blood sugar levels go up, then it starts disrupting your cortisol, uh, you get sleeping problems, you get anxiety issues. And so all of these things can come from long-term starvation or uh, um, long-term fasting. It's just some of the things that you've got to look out for uh, because it will start causing a lot of hormonal disruption. Um, and, you know, because we've sort of like been, been you know, touched on the cortisol aspect of it, if you look at the um, steroid hormones, um, the steroid hormones 
are pretty much, you know, it moves from cholesterol and it moves to DHEA and pregnenolone, estrogen and testosterone. But what happens is if you're constantly stressed, if you constantly have anxiety issues or you have, your, your blood sugar levels are so uh, low um, because of uh, long-term uh, fasting, your body is going to stimulate cortisol in a, response, in, a, in a way to sort of like raise the blood sugar levels. And this often happens with athletes as well. Like athletes who train and their blood sugar levels plummet, uh, the body will want to raise that, that, uh, the blood sugar levels and they do so via cortisol. And when that cortisol pathway is upregulated, it's going to steal resources away from the other hormones. And we call that a pregnenolone steal sometimes. So mm-hmm. instead of the, the steroid hormones going or going to DHEA and progesterone and estrogen and testosterone, it just gets flushed down what I call the cortisol toilet. Um, and the things that will sort of push things down that cortisol pathway is inflammation, stress, low blood sugar, food intolerances, and infections. And the reason why inflammation will push that is because cortisol is your body's natural anti-inflammatory. So if you have a lot of inflammation going on, uh, you know, especially that's something that we see a lot in autoimmune disease as well, um, your body's going to try and make more cortisol to try and dampen down that inflammation. And the more cortisol it gets pumped out, the higher your blood sugar levels go, and that's going to start right. triggering anxiety issues and sleep problems mm-hmm. and disruptions in circadian rhythms. And if that goes on for long enough, then eventually the cortisol just becomes depleted. It just falls flat, and you get sort of like this end-stage adrenal fatigue. And when you get to that stage, it's going to fuel inflammation even more because now you don't have any more cortisol left to dampen that inflammation. So inflammation just goes out of control, and you end up with you know, uh, joint pains and arthritis and all kinds of just, just pain syndromes because you have all this uncontrolled inflammation going on in the body. Um, and, you know, getting back to the leptin, we, you've got all that uncontrolled inflammation. What, it's got, what is it going to do? It's going to fuel leptin, leptin resistance, and insulin resistance, and you get that whole cascade going on again. Um, Which only, only proves one thing, that the body is intricately simple and simply intricate. Oh, it, everything's connected. You know, you know, Dr. Jess, when I started doing this, I've got so many flow charts and everything loops back into everything. And you just realize there's nothing that you can take separately. Uh, you, you know, mm-hmm. you can go around in circles and circles and circles because everything feeds back and, uh, on, each, on each other. It just becomes a real, real intricate system. So the, so the, real, so the real takeaway here is uh, what throws everybody off is inflammation, infection, okay, and it's going to throw all the um, compensatory mechanisms off. It's going to throw uh, the endocrine system off. It's going to throw everything off, okay? And That's right. Am I, am, I, am I getting it right? Yeah, you're getting it right. And then, you know, you know if, if we have all that res- those resources going down to cortisol, if you look at women, because now, you know, it's not going I'm, I'm, Ita- I'm Italian. I look at women all the time. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> so, so if we have that sort of, you know, just as we said, that uncontrolled inflammation in the cortisol pathway, what is it going to do? It's going to increase the leptin and the insulin levels. And if we look at females and we look at estrogen, it's going to push, if you have that, that high insulin and leptin and inflammation, it's going to push DHEA. Whatever is left that has mm-hmm. not gone down the cortisol pathway is going to be pushed down into testosterone. And then from testosterone, what's that going to do? It's going to feel insulin resistance because 
in men and women, they work differently, as we know. Women need estradiol to, to keep their insulin receptors sensitive, and men need testosterone to keep their insulin receptors sensitive. We made that way. So if, if in women that inflammation is causing oh, yeah. all the DHEA... And as they, they say in French, vive la différence. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if in women, <laughs> if all that inflammation is pushing the DHA to testosterone and not estrogen, you're going to get insulin resistance, and that's going to just make that whole cascade worse. And that's when why women get hair thinning, they get hypothyroidism, they get depressed, they have irregular cycles, they've got infertility issues, all of those things go on. And then, you know, that inflammation itself is going to upregulate the uh, phase one enzymes, type 1A1 and type 1B1 in the, in the phase one liver cytochrome system. And they're the enzymes that break down estradiol. So these, you know, this is going to break down the woman's estrogen, which is okay. I mean, this is part of the normal mechanism, but the inflammation is going to make that go faster. So more estrogen is going to be broken down. And then when that estrogen is being broken down, it's turned into your toxic estrogen metabolites, like your 4-hydroxy estrogen. And what do you need to neutralize those estrogens? You need methylation because you need the comp enzyme to neutralize those, uh, those enzymes. And you need NQ01 enzymes to neutralize the quinones that's produced from that. But the, in, the same inflammation that's going to speed up the breakdown of estrogen through those phase one liver enzymes, this, it's the same inflammation that's going to inhibit comps and methylation from doing that last bit. So you have women then ending up with very little of their healthy estrogen and a lot of the unhealthy estrogen. So they're going to have this, this syndrome of, of both low and high estrogen symptoms. Um, okay. Let me, let me interrupt you to let everybody know. If anybody wants to call in and ask, Dr. Eliza, a question at 646-595-2277 is 646-595-2277. Anybody in the chat room uh, can um, ask questions just by typing it in, and I'll ask her. Uh, please go ahead, please. Okay, awesome. Um, then, um, you know, looking at menopause, that was like quite an interesting one. Um, is if you look at menopause, you know, obviously through menopause, you get your estrogen level starts to drop off. And one of the interesting things, because, you know, like I said, women need estrogen to keep those insulin receptors um, sensitive, and it's the same with the leptin receptors. So as estrogen drops off, women actually experience a drop in dopamine, and they experience a drop in leptin and leptin sensitivity in the brain. Both of those, the low dopamine and the decrease in leptin, is going to trigger hunger. So, you know, when I looked at this, I thought, well, that makes sense, because a lot of women, you know, as they go into menopause, they say, oh, I'm just, you know, I, I'm just getting all these cravings, uh, you know, and I'm just eating all the time. Um, and it's possibly because the dopamine and the leptin drops off. And so as they get more hungry, they're going to eat more. And by eating more, they're actually going to increase that uh, gut increase in called GLP-1. And this is something, it's not really, you know, it's going... I'm just briefly mentioning it because I just thought it was so interesting. But GLP-1 actually has a role in dopamine metabolism. They actually found that GLP-1, when you stimulate GLP-1, it increases the dopamine uh, trans transport uh, system. So in effect, when you're eating and you're stimulating those uh, small intestinal incretins, you're also increasing your transport of dopamine um, to the places that it should go. And, and this is one of the reasons why... Um, uh, you know, I guess uh, the whole reward system of uh, of food uh, has, you know, into place. But I thought that's an interesting way of looking at it because that could explain why, uh, you know, women 
uh, when they go through menopause, they tend to have lower dopamine levels. So they tend to um, so sometimes get depressed when they get, go into menopause. And why they may turn to food as a way to sort of like uh, make them feel better um, and get their dopamine levels up. But at the same time, also, um, they unfortunately then gain weight in the process as well. Um, and, you know, looking at um, men, the same thing, you know, they need the testosterone to keep those estrogen receptors, uh, sorry, the, the, the insulin receptors sensitive. The same thing happens with them. If they have a lot of inflammation, a lot of insulin, a lot of leptin, that testosterone gets turned into estrogen. Uh, and this is through the aromatase enzymes that's found in the fat cells. And then the more they get, uh, they, 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 uh, relationship between estrogen and testosterone gets skewed towards estrogen, the more fat they accumulate, the more leptin they produce. And then men become insulin resistant, so they'll start to get sugar cravings, they'll start to crave beer and other carbohydrates, you know, they'll start to get blood sugar problems. They can even start to get a little emotional, you know, like women going through yeah. Um yeah. and they get libido fluctuations, yeah. um, and they go through like I guess what you would call a male menopause kind of uh, situation. Um yeah, so that's sort of like, you know, the the steroid hormones in a nutshell. Well, you put it together really, 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 really well. Um, would you, um, since we're getting on our hour now, uh, would you put it together in that what can people do on a ongoing, easy basis to, because you kind of mentioned it at the beginning, uh, to kind of, you know, instead of having to think about all these things at once, what should they just be doing um, with their diets and so forth that would make a lot of this stuff regulated on its own. Okay. Well, they should chew their food properly, number one. Uh, well, actually, no. Yeah. Number one would be that they have to eat when they are rested. You know, when they have to eat when they're in a parasympathetic state. So that means don't eat when you're stressed. Sit down, calm down, be in the moment, and, uh, you know, make sure that your digestive system is, the you know has is the the man of the moment I guess you know don't think of work and be stressed, be in a rested state with your family if if you can or just go you know go out of the office and just go sit under a tree or in in a park somewhere, uh, be in a rested state and that's when your body is going to be producing all the digestive enzymes the you know the stomach acid and all the other things. That's the first thing. The second thing is chew your food properly. Uh, you, you know, we don't chew our food. We like take three chews and then we swallow. And then our poor uh, you know, stomach enzymes and the, uh, the bacteria in our gut just can't break it down. And so it just ends up fermenting. But it's actually been shown that those hormone increase, gut hormone increase, uh, gut hormones that we talked about, they work better if you chew your food better. So you have to chew your food. Um, I think Mike Mutzel, he mentioned something that you got to sort of, it almost works out at about um, every minute. Like you have to, you have to chew your food almost for a minute before you swallow. And I actually tried it the other day, and I thought, wow, that's actually pretty hard. You know, for for us in modern societies, used to having to eat quickly, it's actually really hard to sit down and chew one mouthful of food for a minute before you swallow. But that's a big it thing. Is. And then obviously you've got to, yeah, it's difficult. Another big thing is you have to have fiber. You've got to eat fiber. Fiber is what turns into short-chain fatty acids. The short-chain fatty acids make those receptors work in the gut. If they don't work, you're going to get delayed insulin response and blood sugar problems. So it's really the pretty basic things like don't eat a lot of uh, sugars and uh, 
um, you know, uh, low, um, um, high GI carbohydrates, you know, eat a good amount of fats because fats help to um, dampen down that insulin response and eat a lot, you know, eat, have, make sure there's a lot of fiber. Uh, a lot of polyphenols, they've shown that a lot of polyphenols, and polyphenols is just a fancy name for all these wonderful antioxidants and substances you get in food. You know, this is what you get in all your, your broccoli and your, um, all your, your, your vegetables. Polyphenols uh, and things like resveratrol that you find in um, grapes and a lot of your, your berries, all of those things make those gut hormones work well. Bifidobacteria, one of the you know the key components of your of a healthy gut microbiome, make the, those uh, the, those uh, ingredients work really really well. Um, you know you've got to you've got to keep keep the gut healthy. Um, and right. you um, yeah it's that's that's and you, you pointed out how the gut is a great creator of inflammation. You know, exactly. and it's it's a big long circle. Uh, but the the simplicity of it, you know, being going back to the body being interested intricately simple is that in order to get our bodies to work simply okay is you know it's it's nice to know all the fancy stuff but you just mentioned it you know fiber chewing your food correctly uh which is which is a project by the way you know chewing for a whole minute is is tough uh and you know doing the things that we've always known that should be done to maintain gut health Okay, that we tend to put off to the side because we've been told by the powers that be, you know, just take a pill, ignore this, ignore that. Oh, well, you don't really need multivitamins, you know, just go ahead and eat these, you know, vitamin and and mineral deficient foods that are sprayed with glyphosates and so forth and so on and so on and so on. You know, and it's important for healthcare providers to understand the nuances, but it's really important in our daily lives just to do exactly what you said, eh? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you need that microbiome to make your B12 and your folate for your methylation cycle. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've spoken about how methylation, uh, you know, ties in with all of this, but that's what you, you need your gut bacteria to make those nutrients. You need your stomach acid to break down protein um, to turn it into methionine, which is a substrate for SAMI and uh, everything that we've talked about. So it all comes back down to the digestive system. And, you know, one of the tragedies is that metformin, which is probably the most common uh, drug prescribed for type 2 di- uh, diabetics and uh, metabolic syndrome, it's a potent inhibitor of vitamin B12. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that can just really make things so hard along the, along the way, um, you know, if you're a metformin and you're not supplementing with some form of B12 or if the gut's just not healthy and just not producing um, uh, the B12 and the folate and a lot of the other nutrients that um that you need well you're um you're a wealth of information you really are and um and i'm really happy that you pointed out not only how the gut is involved with digestion but how it's involved in you know all of our other body systems and the important ones like the endocrine system the immune system you know the neurotransmitter system um this is how you your body runs itself. Plus, remember, everybody already knows that the gut microbiome is what, you know, runs your DNA expression. And what you mentioned was exactly how this happens. You know, so I appreciate the time you spent in preparation, which I, I could tell was prodigious. 
and uh, <laughs> the, the time, and, and I know about all the flow charts because every time we talk, I see the flow charts on your walls and stuff like that. And you, you know, I'm wondering if the kids go by, they have flow charts on them. I'm like, okay, there's algorithms on the kids. So I can drag them down. It's going to draw draw a flow chart on them. Okay, now you can go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, but uh, all kidding aside, you're, uh, you know, you really know your stuff, and uh, I appreciate you um, being on the show and explaining all this to us. Seriously. Oh no, it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun uh, looking at it actually, and uh, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I definitely learned something out of it as well. You know, you, just, you, you sometimes forget how things are connected, and when you actually mm-hmm. have forced to actually sit down and do it, it's. Um, you're like, oh yeah, of course, of course, you know. And so it, it, gets, it just makes you look at things in a completely different way again. Yeah, there, there is a, there's a misnomer out there. Of people say that people who can't teach, the fact is, people who teach are the ones that can do it the best because they have to learn it several different ways and have to learn it really well because they have to express it to people. Okay, so guess what? When you have to express it to people, you really end up learning it very, very, very well yourself. Not only it, but the various permutations of whatever it is you're teaching. So I appreciate your time tonight, uh, or this morning in your case, tomorrow morning, right? That's right. It's Tuesday over there. You're like, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of weird. It's, uh, by the way, I got to ask one question. You know, in the United States, we have we have time zones, right? And uh, like Chicago's an hour behind me, and Denver's three hours behind me. And and when I talk to people in Australia, it's not kind of the same thing, except someplace in South Australia, it's like a half hour, you know? It's like if it's yeah. 12, it's 12 and a half hour. How did they do that? You know, it's uh, it's funny. I, I don't get it, actually, to be quite honest. I, I don't I think, think anybody does. I think, <laughs> no. I think all the, all the states here in Australia, they try to be like little independent countries, and they just do things for the sake of being different. And like, no, we're going to yeah, do it this go. way Thank instead you. of that way. It's like Texas and, you know, here, right? <laughs> well, why? It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, really, because seriously, like, you know that there's different kinds of lime. There's Borrelia, Azalea, Borrelia Garni, Borrelia uh, bugdiforia, which is what the normal lime organism is. But Texas has got to have its own Lyme disease. So they called it Borrelia Lone Starry. You know, for the Lone Star State. And they have their own tick called Lone Star Tick. And I really think that everybody in Texas gathered up the ticks and then put little white dots on the backs and then release them again because everything's bigger and better in Texas. Let's face well, it. And they, also, okay. and they also told the ticks to not cross the border, obviously, you know. Of course, you, can't get, tick, gonna... you can't get a Texas tick somewhere else. It's got to be in Texas. That's right, you, you know? can't. I mean, that's, what, that's why in, in Australia the line doesn't exist. You're not going to have ticks over there. They wouldn't go there, you know. Exactly. Or New Zealand, they're like, well, let's just wreck <laughs> We don't have it. There are people in Zealand actually believe that there's no lime there. I'm like, okay, alrighty. So I have another fairy tale for you and a bridge to sell you. Very good. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Eliza, I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your, you know, bountiful information with us. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was it was really good talking to you again okay. as well. Take care now. Bye bye. Bye. Everybody, that was Eliza, uh, Eliza Lambert. She's in Queensland, Australia. And I think you could tell by the depth of her knowledge that she is the real deal, that she really knows this stuff. And uh, it was a pleasure having her on the show, and I'm going to be asking her to come back and talk about different subjects. Uh, and um, I hope that you enjoyed it as well. If you have any questions, do um, you know what I did not um, ask her was how to get in touch with her. So let me give you her um her um, email address. Um, it's uh, E-L-I-Z-M-A at realizehealth.com.au. 
R-E-A-L-I-Z-E health.com.au. And it would be Eliza, E-L-I-Z-M-A at R-E-A-L-I-Z-E health.com.au. So I apologize for um, not asking her how to get in touch with this. So anybody in Australia or anywhere else should get in touch with her if they need a consultation on one of the many subjects that she is absolutely wonderful on. Um, as everybody knows, Dr. Jess will be going to uh, England pretty soon. There's a couple of shows just before that, and then we'll be taking a month off. And um, looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing my my uh, friends in UK and um, teaching a course and uh, seeing my seeing the patients that uh, require my help. So I will speak with you guys next week. Okay. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for your attention. And don't ever forget. If nobody told you they love you today, Dr. Jess does. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally near And I can feel